Hi, I'm Kat Holbrook, cook, lover of all things British and host of The Doorstep Kitchen. Welcome and thanks for tuning into this show which celebrates the best of British food and drink. Each week I'll be chatting to someone that inspires me by cooking or producing delicious things on our doorsteps. We'll also hear from our expert forager Imogen Davis on what delights you can find right now and I'll be sharing some of my favourite recipes which I hope will inspire you. Coming up in this episode, I'll talk through my recipe for rhubarb and custard brulees, a real crowd pleaser and a get-ahead dessert. And Imogen tells us about yarrow, a gorgeous wildflower with strong medicinal properties. But first, I chat to Sarah Wyndham-Lewis. My guest today is a trained honey sommelier, a great taste award judge and producer of frankly some of the best honey in the UK. She is the co-founder of Bermondsey Street Bees, a multi-award winning sustainable beekeeping practice and artisan honey business. It's Sarah Wyndham-Lewis. Hi, Sarah. Morning, Kat. How lovely to have human contact in these weird times. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, just, um, you know, I think we're all getting a little bit antsy. uh, But the nice thing is for us that the bees have had a good start to the year. Um, We're essential workers because we're in the food industry and also agriculture looking after the bees. So we were very worried at the beginning of this that we wouldn't be able to access our 15 different apiaries. Um, And in fact, it's been absolutely fine. And and everything that needed to flower for the bees has been flowering in its proper sequence. And that's a joy because we know our bees are happy and well. Brilliant. So what have you been up to apart from obviously going to tend to the bees? I think I saw a virtual tasting. Yes. Yes. Well, there's been all sorts of strange things going on because normally at this time of year, we would be starting to do events. We would be starting to have people doing tastings with us and and some bee visits and stuff. And and also in terms of our business, we'd be shipping honey out to restaurants because that is mainly what we do, did. I don't know whether to use a current or, or past tense. Mm. Um, we supply a lot of London's really top restaurants and bars, as well as a lot of local people um, with with honey in buckets. So obviously that is a non-starter. We've been selling quite a lot of honey in jars. We've been gifting honey to people making NHS meals, which has been such a lovely thing to be able to do. Mm. We've contributed to some care packages for people, some hampers and stuff. So it's been little scribbly, scrabbly days, you know, just sort of broken up. But yes, doing some online teaching, um, including virtual honey tasting, which was quite hilarious. But I'm <laughs> not sure I'm going to repeat the experiment because it's. I, I think you might say it's very one-sided. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I enjoyed it, and the, the people who were there. I think I think they did too. But it was it was definitely a guinea pig thing, and 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 actually there was a lot more that they needed and wanted to know that didn't involve me um, sitting there tasting honey in front. Of it was it was fun (laughs) did they have the honeys at home to taste along with you um so what I got them to do was to go into their kitchen cupboards yeah and get some honeys and I wanted them particularly to have a look at the labels because uh honey is the third most adulterated food stuff on earth and there, there are clues I mean there are good ways to get yourself real honey very simple ways um and so we looked at the labels on on stuff that they had and some were indeed lovely honeys from small producers and, and direct, you know, single source honeys, mm-hmm. and others were the sort of supermarket 
horrors. And I've had some really nice emails from people saying, I will never, ever buy supermarket honey, ever, ever, as long as I live. I thought, job done. That's yeah. fine. And now they can they can be more um, more aware as a consumer at point of sale. And that, that's, that's all we need. You know, I'm not saying they shouldn't be allowed to sell the supermarket honey. People shouldn't be allowed to buy it. Of course they are. It's about choice and it's about understanding of products. Yes. Yeah. So um, just before we get into why the bees are so important and supermarket honey and what to look mm. out for, I just want to go back to you said the main part of your business is selling buckets of honey to restaurants. So do you mean literally like kilos or, you know, huge, huge vats? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, it depends. I mean, occasionally, I think one of the funniest things ever was we sent 150 kilos off one day in the back of an Uber to um, Petersham Nurseries, who were doing the uh, catering tents at one a big art fair, Um, and they were making a honey tart, which is one of their signature. Uh, tarts. So, I mean, that, I just thought this is so urban and so wonderful. Here is really beautiful London honey going off in an Uber. <laughs> it's just, oh, and it's going to be served in Regent's Park. And mostly, I mean, we, you know, mostly we're shipping five, ten kilos at a time. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're reasonably big buckets that go out. Yeah, the, I, I can't imagine. I mean, we're just so used to just one jar, aren't we? I know, I know. <laughs> but we do have some private customers who buy honey from us because five kilos is our minimum. Mm. at wholesale and they do actually buy a five kilo bucket to feed a family for you know a few months or so because honey of course doesn't go off yeah and um you you know you supply to some amazing people across london yeah we do yeah who are you particularly proud of working with well, some of the, the chefs, um, I think people, Michelle Rue's always been a really great supporter of ours. There's a lovely film that he made about us up on our website. He's a sweetheart. So we supply, um, not Gavroche, because he uses French honey. I mean, he's a Frenchman, and that's perfectly rational. Uh, but we supply Rue at the Landau, which is a, a fantastic um, a Rue restaurant. Yeah, you have much yeah. more of an English feel. And the Artesian Bar, which is also in the same hotel. And that's, you know, at one stage, we said to be the best bar in the world. Um, we supply Tom Carey at his bar and grill. We supply Jose Pizarro at all of his restaurants. We supply um, uh, Daniel Hum, who, whose restaurant in New York was said to be the best in the world again and has just opened in London. Yeah, in Claridge's. Poor love, you know, just opened and just closed. Uh, yeah, so, so some really some really grand chefs. Uh, but the, I think what they have in common is uh, that they're prepared to invest in honey for two reasons. One is because the flavour is so... I mean, it's just it's just a world apart from a processed honey, as as a good coffee is from a you know freeze dried you know bleh, instant granules. Mm. Um, but also, they really understand that the vital role that bees play in the base of the food chain and and other things as well. I mean, what's the importance of bees? So um, in terms of the food that we eat, obviously our fruit and vegetables, uh, the majority of them are pollinated by bees. Uh, But also, crucially, they also supply um, the food that... so right through the dairy industry um, and also in a lot of the meat industry, whether you're talking about um, creatures that are kept in, you know, superb, uh, you know, very sustainably farmed, pasture fed, all of those things, or you're talking about the, the less attractive end where, where they're actually kept in sheds and fed, the forage that they eat is pollinated by bees. Yeah. And that's really, really super important. And, and therefore, we wouldn't have cheese. We, we wouldn't have a lot, a lot of things that we don't necessarily associate with bees. But equally, uh, neither would we have quite a lot of pharmaceuticals. So there's, there's three particular um, sectors. So there's, there's um, 
heart drugs, blood pressure drugs, and cancer drugs, and they are extracts derived from bee-pollinated plants. I mean, that's a thing that people, a lot of people don't know. Mm. But you know, sort of beyond that, if we can just get over ourselves as humans, because I think you know we're probably the least important, hundreds of thousands of other species uh, depend on, on bee pollination. So, you know, right from lots of invertebrates who are really important insects, in, in, you know, again, in the food chain, in, invisibly, um, uh, to birds, to, to big mammals like deer, foxes, hedgehogs, all sorts of these depend on, on the bounty that comes from bee pollinated trees, bushes. Uh, so, you know, the more you dig, the more you realize that without those bees doing their job, and it's not all honeybees. We, we mustn't get hung up on thinking honeybees are the be all and end all. There's 1,500 different pollinators in this country, but the, those honeybees are pretty essential in agriculture because there's a lot of them. You know, they're hive, they're managed, mm. um, and they're, they're just uh, they're vital. They really are vital. We we let them go at our peril. Yeah, yeah. So that brings us back to supporting the bee industry, and I think one of the ways you can do that is to buy good honey supporting beekeepers who are looking after the bees mm, planting mm. or forage for them and helping them thrive yeah definitely i think i said to you sometimes it's a silly little thing that occurred to me once but I, it, it has a point I, I was thinking so what you need in life is you need to have a good a good baker a good butcher a good greengrocer and a beekeeper mm. the money that is put back into the bottom of the industry supports beekeeping because because we only take mostly in this country we take uh, one maybe two crops a year so we've got a long wait it's like like wine like olive oil you know every harvest is different we we obsess I come from a farming family so I'm used to waking up every morning people going oh the weather you know it's so awful and the grass will never grow and this and that mm. you know we, there's, there's a lot of angst but there's an awful lot of skill a lot of training a lot of understanding and expertise that goes into being a beekeeper. Um, on any meaningful level rather than just a hobby hive in the garden which is obviously nice but a different issue Mm. Um, those are not for free and if beekeepers are not repaid by people buying honey at fair prices then they won't afford to be beekeepers and there's a a new report out in Europe uh, which is now very concerned about the food chain there because of cheap imports from places like China landed at half the price of the cost of production of European honey and saying that they may well lose about 10 million hives in Europe over the next few years and that's pretty much all the pollination services which underpins European agriculture so people buying real honey has a really really powerful role in supporting British agricultural industry from the base but also it's just so much nicer (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so what can you um how can you find a good honey so I've taught and thought and been round in circles about this. So there's a very short answer and there's a slightly longer answer. The very, very short answer, and this is, this is the trick which will help you always, I think, to at least be on the right path, is turn the jar around. If it says the word blend on it, as in a blend of EU honeys, a blend of non-EU and EU honeys, a blend of, even if it says a blend of British honeys, put it down. Just put it down. Do not buy that product. Blending honey, there is literally no reason on earth to blend honey. It's only in order to disguise and obfuscate the fact that it's blended. They probably blended a good honey and quite a lot of middling honey and an awful lot of really cheap and disgusting honey produced in 
God knows where, because they're not forced to actually specify which countries the honey comes from. Um, and places like China, the classification of what is sold as honey is very different from something that's acceptable in Europe, but it's not tested. But these, these things are very real, and you can, have, you can sidestep it. Quick swerve, just do not buy anything that says blend. Beyond that, um, I always say to people, uh, go onto the British Beekeepers Association website. There's a thing saying, find beekeeping near me. Now, every single beekeeping society, local beekeeping society, these are hobby beekeepers, by the way, but some of them have a lot of hives and they're very knowledgeable people, a lot of them. Um, they will be selling their honey. Uh, sort of August, August through to October is a time when you'll find that they will have an open weekend, which will be fascinating in itself. Uh, and you'll be able to you know, pick up a few pots of honey and, and find which one you really love and then have a relationship with that mm. beekeeper such that you say, oh, next year I'd really like some more. I mean, everybody keeps lists of people who want to buy from them. Um, and equally farmers markets where people will turn up selling their honey. Um, you know, really just keep your, keep your eyes open for honey. And, and what you want is you want a honey that is clearly single source so you haven't got that b word blended um, and then you, hopefully you'll see the the beekeeper's name and address on it if not um, there'll be another name because again that's law and if you just quickly google that i mean if you find um somebody at the end of that showing you their bees mm. <laughs> you just uh, it, it's very different from meeting some glossy corporation that's you know big time in the food industry uh, so that's that's another way of actually understanding and you know, I think we've talked about this before. You can have really, you know, fine honey made in a good place by a really careful beekeeper, but it's not necessarily going to be the most fabulous honey because everything depends on what the bees are bringing in. Some people like us, we're really lucky enough to live in an area where we have an astonishing variety of forage mm. with some really great top notes like lime and elderflower and wonderful things, bramble, even though we're in the city. Um, and, and other people, you know, may not have such delicious forage and their honey may be plainer. But it's still, if it's bought straight from the beekeeper, then it hasn't had, it hasn't been pasteurized it hasn't been microfiltered uh, and it hasn't been mixed with something you know some other cheap sugars to bulk it out so you know it's always even it may not light your day up but it's still going to be good honey yeah so going back to the taste then you said obviously we don't want to be buying a blended honey but um also we, because we want the taste and why does these single source honeys all by produced by small beekeepers um why do they taste better well, it's not even just small beekeepers. I mean, there are, you know, there's people, we, we are um, technically, I mean, not technically, we are bee farmers, yeah, we're commercial yeah, yeah. beekeepers. It's more to do with the level of care. Now, obviously, if you are um, in a commercial sense uh, making honey or even just you want to be proud of it at a, at a local sense, um, you're going to try and ensure that your bees have the best possible forage that they can. Also, because it's critical for their welfare, because there, there is um, globally a lot of research into what's affecting. And again, we're talking about honeybees here. Um, time and time again it comes back to hunger i mean there's lots of other factors people get very hot under the cholera and, and rightly so about things you know insecticides and goodness knows what uh, the, the point is those things go away if you starve 
you know, it's it, being fed properly, a, 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 the right diet and enough variety in your diet is as essential to honeybees as to any other living creature. Mm -hmm. So you want to be very sure that your bees are healthy and well, you want them to be well fed. Um, so you also would like to produce a honey that you're very proud of. And people, beekeepers tend to be very, very protective of their apiary sites. If they find somewhere that makes a wonderful honey, they're going to a, keep that quite secret and B, you know, fight tooth and nail to, to keep their hives there if they can. People sometimes move their hives um, from one place to another. So if you've got an oilseed rape crop, when that pods, there's nothing left for the bees within flying distance where you have a monoculture outside London. So, you know, you've built the hive up on this wonderful rich oilseed rape. What are they going to eat afterwards? The majority of time you will probably have to end up moving that hive. Yeah, because the bees don't actually go out um they forage as, as far as you think they do, do they? No, no, about two and a half miles. So it's not that far. I mean, in theory, they can, and they've been researched, you know, recorded as traveling up to 10 miles. But the problem is that the income return, the energy they use to fly out 10 miles, will all be burnt up by the time they come back to the hive. Yeah. So there's literally no point in them doing that. Bees are very, very good on, on energy returns. So they want to forage really locally. Um, and they will be very picky about, about what they, if they have the choice, they'll be very picky about what they take because different plants offer them different things at different times. So it's a bit like the, the, the bees wake up in the morning and go, okay, what are we going to have today to eat? The scout bees will go out in the early part of the day and their job is to go and find out what's in Flannerville. I can see from the way that our bees behave, they have a pretty good idea. They keep a very close eye on stuff that's coming mm -hmm. and they can smell. They have a fantastic sense of smell way beyond actually their flying, comfortable flying range. So they'll go out, the scout bees, and they'll come back and, and they'll come to the hive and they'll go, wow, guys, this is ready for us. And they'll do the thing that some people are familiar with called the waggle dance, which is on the comb. The scout bees will describe in a dance exactly where the forage is and how rich it is. And they're also be giving out they're a bit like a drug dealer they're giving out free samples mm. to the rest of the hive to the worker bees going here taste this it's fantastic you may well have two or three scout bees competing for the attention of the hive and eventually there'll be a sort of consensus and they will then all go the whole hive all the worker bees of the hive will go and forage on that one thing mm. which is why they're such efficient pollinators is because they will only forage on one species at a time oh, okay so they'll go out and, and whatever's, they like to forage in full sun. They're not very good at temperature control, unlike bumblebees with their big furry coats. So they're very sensitive to temperature and they, they love also when the sun hits the plants, that's when you get nectar flow. So that's why you will mainly, mainly see honeybees in sunny patches on, on flowers. That's, a wet, that's where to look for them. Mm. Um, and every lunchtime, pretty much, I take the dog out and we go and see, uh, we've got eight hives on our roof above where I'm sitting now. Um, and I go and see what, what the girls are eating. And if I have a chance to plant more of that, uh, which I, I, we've got several community gardens, I, I will. I take really careful note of what, what makes them happy and I'll plant more of that. And I think a lot of beekeepers do the same. How can you tell? what they've gone and eaten there's, there's several ways actually one is in the end product in the honey 
So if you've got top notes that are very clear, like lime trees, and uh, those they, they are very that's part of my work as a honey sommelier, differentiating. But at an earlier stage, which is really fun as a beekeeper, if you look at the pollen that they're bringing in on their legs, you can tell what they've been eating because the things like horse chestnuts have bright red pollen, and they, they the actual pollens are very very different. And because they're only foraging on one thing, the colour will tell you what that is. Mm, so okay, that, okay. that's really I mean you watch your bees coming coming and going on the on the landing platform and, and they're so laden sometimes they look like they've done the biggest supermarket sweep you can imagine yeah. but and their trousers you know they're called pollen pants in the business um will be one color and and that will give you a jolly good clue what they're actually on but i i go and eyeball them sometimes you know honeybees really most of their food they like to come from trees they are a tree dwelling insect and about 60 to 70 percent of their food needs to come from flowering trees and bushes so often you only hear them and you have to just stand really still like i was under a horse chestnut the other day and i was suddenly aware the whole canopy of this tree was just full of bees absolutely full of bees and you walk past that in a city if you're not stopping and looking you'd never know yeah because because i think some people think that beekeeping is you know for the end of a field in the country but actually some of the best honey is actually produced in the city and your bermondsey street bees is definitely an example of that and why why do you think that your honey is great we're quite lucky in cities we're, we're lucky and unlucky so baseline luck is that you have a warmer climate. We have a much uh, longer growing season, earlier spring, later autumn. Um, and also we have a lot of non-native plantings because you've got this extraordinary variety. You've got the, what's planted in the mm-hmm. local parks, you have people's gardens, you have people's windowsills, people's roof terraces. Again, masses of fuss about bees and native and non-native species. That is really about the wild bees. So of the 275 species of bee in this country, only one of them is a honeybee. And the honeybee is the most generalist feeder. Their their limitation is they have a very short tongue. They can't access trumpet-shaped flowers. But beyond that, they can pretty much scoop up all sorts of stuff. So they are really not fussed by eating non-native plants. The wild bee species are specific feeders. So you will have an ivy bee and all it eats is ivy. Now, um, if the ivy, if the climate is changing, that ivy doesn't flower or it's not, you know, the native ivy that they're used to or whatever it may be, um, you can run into real trouble because there's literally nothing for them to eat. Or this is the downside of the success of bees in cities if it gets crowded. Now, again, from where I'm sitting here, uh, in a 10 kilometer distance from here, uh, there are approaching 4,000 other hives. Now that's really dense. And, and what we've ended up is we have, as a factor of three times greater density of hives in, in Greater London now than anywhere else in Europe. And you can definitely extrapolate that and say, so we have the greatest density on earth of honeybees wow. in a city which has been documented as losing two and a half times the area of Hyde Park of green space every year. So therein you have a real problem. And when honeybees are starving, two things happen. They steal from the wild bees as we were saying they will mop up everything that the wild bees need the more delicate threatened species and the other thing is that they will rob from each other's hives and in doing so because their immune systems are low because they're hungry they will be spreading disease there all, all sorts of problems happen when they start robbing from each other's hives it's a very bad thing and you would want to avoid that at all costs so if you see signs that hives are vulnerable our response is to take them away and our yields and that's always the 
I know, that's the acid test. What are the bees bringing in? What's accessible to us safely to take from the bees without compromising their, their winter health? Because that's where they're storing the honey is for their winter stores. Um, are, are dropping, you know, have dropped historically over many, many years. So um, that, that's why we are very, you know, we call ourselves a sustainable beekeeping practice. Mm. And it, it works at many, many levels. It works in the way that we look after our hives, which is for bee welfare rather than for extracting like robber barons, you know, the maximum honey that we can that's not on our agenda at all um you know the the way that we source locally we have you know we run on green energy everything that we possibly can source locally we do um and also we you know in in terms of um every possible way that we can just avoid making an impact on the environment and and one of those ways is to keep planting um, wherever we can so we beg borrow and steal patches of land from the council or from you know working with big businesses like Barclay Homes um, who will give us uh, good good planting spaces and we can then uh, make an uplift on on the positives you know side of, of trying to a take the the pressure off the wild pollinators and b to make sure that the, the bees that we're responsible for in that area are, are well fed well nourished yeah I didn't realize there were so many hives in London Oh, it's 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 extraordinary, and you know there's a there's a whole raft of them where I'm afraid these people are not trained. They haven't put the hard work in, and I, and I, I, it makes me just despair because I, I said people say, oh, I'd really like some bees. I don't, you know, I've, I've got a book, and and I just I'm just going to get a hive and I'll learn. And, and I say, well, if if you take the word bees out of that and put in the word cows, you'd look like a bloody idiot. And, and there is no difference. If you have stock, you are a stock man, you are a farmer, even if you've just got one hive at the bottom of your garden, you're taking responsibility for those bees, but you're also part of a much, much more intricate mosaic of sustainability. Yeah. And then I just want to talk about kind of filtering things and another difference between your honey and something you get in the supermarket and kind of the benefits of the pollen and how good honey is often cloudy. Gosh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that just depends on the sugars, the, the glucose, fructose balance, just, you know, a, a glucose one's going to set very quickly. But um, the, the traditional method, which is still used by the majority of people who are making good single source honeys, is that you simply you take the combs, put into a centrifugal spinner, and the honey then comes out and it's, it's full of, you know, stuff, what, what's politely called hive detritus. So large flakes of wax, maybe bits of be you know but there it is so it comes pouring out you open the gate at the bottom of the honey spinner and you put it through a very very coarse filter now that is pretty much it i mean we we may do another filtering probably will do another filtering but um the crucial thing is that we're never filtering under 200 microns so the biggest pollen granule in this country is 190 microns. It comes from a marrow. So most of our pollens in this country are very small and they just float through that 200 micron filter. So again, all we're taking out is probably more wax. Um, so that's it. That's all. It's done. It's ready. You know, whereas in, uh, in the commercial world where they're blending honey, in order to actually produce this really cheap substance that's sold on a supermarket shelf, they, they're working to three criteria, colour, viscosity and price so this is a laboratory job this and the actual honey itself is subjected to a number of processes they sometimes refer to pasteurizing honey um, as if that's a good thing as if honey was somehow something that had something wrong or dirty in it and needed pasteurization honey is, is naturally 
pure. And it's antifungal, it's antibacterial. And half of those properties are because it's a super saturated sugar, so nothing can grow in it mm -hmm. uh, as long as it's not got a water content over about 18%. So it's unnecessary to cook it. You don't need to pasteurize it. It's just obscuring the fact that what they're doing is using that process to blend honeys from a lot of different sources to the ideal viscosity, price, and color that they're trying to achieve. So you've got a lot of, you know, huge amount of honeys, good, bad, indifferent. Um, uh, you know, there's all sorts of dirty business going on here. Honey's trans-shipped and relabeled, so it may say that it's an EU honey, but it actually originated, you know, on the other side of the world. It's just been bought and sold and relabeled and, and stuff. And then it all gets blended together. And um, to do that, you know, they apply a, a quite a lot of heat to it. Uh, but also they microfilter it. Now, the reason they microfilter it is to take the pollens out. Now, the pollen is... A very small percentage of honey. It's only, you know, maybe one, two percent of what you find in honey. It's only incidental. Really, what honey is made out of is nectar that they gather. The pollen is what they bring in to feed their babies. Mm. Um, so, but it's there and it, it gives you such a wonderful mouthfeel and stuff. And it also is, is the protein component of the honey. But it also tells you where that honey came from. So, under a microscope, you can look at it and say, but these are Chinese pollens. These are Mexican pollens. These are Turkish pollens. And if that honey is wrongly labelled, then obviously these people are, you know, wide open to to being, you know, held up for for not being truthful about this honey. So they they microfilter it out. They blast it through ceramic filters under enormous pressure to remove really, really every microscopic tiny bit of pollen that they possibly can. So they're taking its blueprint away, essentially. There's another whole level of corruption in which they then add pollens from where it's supposed to come from. Oh, my God. <laughs> which is, I know. Yeah. But they've been caught out doing that because the Chinese um, were doing it, putting European pollens in, but they put the same amount into every batch. And the laboratory spotted that pretty quickly because nature never does the same thing exactly the same way twice. Yeah. But, you know, there, there isn't enough labeling there isn't enough testing you know it just there's this this constructed product that's sold on a supermarket shelf and i've i've seen a thing called honey for sale for a pound in a squeezy bottle in lidl a pound i mean that is full of other sugars that have been added to it to bulk it out there's no there's literally no way that honey can be sold for a pound it can't even be produced for a pound not even in china you know it's it, it's it's horrendous so i think honey is a luxury product and unfortunately there's a whole market has evolved in selling it as a cheap product and honestly it's you know if you're if you're buying honey for a pound or 3.99 or whatever um you're you're not even beginning to scratch the surface of the value of this product it's one of the the biggest things that we have to battle against is is honey legitimized honey mm. fraud on a massive scale so again back to this thing of if it says blend put it down that's your simplest insurance policy um, yeah. against having having picked up something that's not real mm. um, and hope hopefully it has you know, the beekeeper's name or the name of a little business or, or somebody and you can look them up and go yeah okay they're they're, they're proper beekeepers they're making real honey mm. um, and their bees are doing a good job in the base of the food chain and helping feed us all and and you know the pound the extra you know pounds that you spend on buying that jar are a reward in terms of you know hopefully the flavors uh, and and certainly the components of it and 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 in in helping support uh, the very base level british agriculture yeah yeah amazing so what um, are some of your favorite honeys 
Um, I have two really favourite honeys. So uh, one is beach honeys because people don't, uh, when you go for a walk on a gravelly beach and you see all those funny little green plants, you know, the sea kale, sea mm. cabbage, sea lavender, people don't expect those to be valuable sources of forage to honeybees, but they really, really love anything um, that, that's from that seashore. They're very keen on minerals um, and, and they will collect minerals. If I put tea leaves out into onto our little terrace garden, it'll be absolutely stuffed with bees uh, gathering moisture from it, but also they're after the minerals in the tea leaves. You know, you have honeys which are essentially from salty plants and so you get this very dense uh, generally really quite thick honeys and they have this slight sort of salt caramel thing going on um, and I, I've got uh, a honey from um, some Sussex from the beach which is just out of this world delicious and I've got mm. another one which is from a beach in Tuscany it's a very it's a very rare honey it's part of the arc of taste it's from a protected zone in Tuscany a national park and um, they're very very different but they do have this commonality of the mouthfeel and this absolute Absolutely. I can't really describe it. It's a transporting taste. You're almost by the sea. But sort of you know, sweet and a little bit of salt stuff. So that I, I'm always going to buy beach honeys if I see them. Also, you get it in the same thing with marshes. So um, you get things like water mint, make a really powerful minty top note in honey. We've got another honey that's made on Hackney marshes where, where it's a wet year and there's lots of water mint. We know that we're going to get a super minty honey. Yeah. Um, and sort of lastly, you um, you are a honey sommelier, and we haven't really spoken about that. So, what does that role entail? Yeah, honey sommelier. It's a tricky one because it sounds a bit pretentious. People, you know, sommeliers properly belong to wine, um, but the job that, that a wine sommelier does is very much what we do with honey. Is that we're trying to uh, have, as it were, a taste library in our heads to understand when we're tasting honey. Uh, what its components are, uh, what you might want to do with it, um, whether it's good, bad or ugly, because, you know, there's a, there's a lot of all three around. Has it been cut with artificial sugars? Has it been cut with corn syrup? All of these things, the more you taste, the more sensitive you, you become to them. Uh, very, very interestingly, in in Italy, where, where I did my training, the ultimate... Um, as accolades that are given to honey are done not by you know machines that are doing analysis and looking at the pollen and all of those sorts of things they are always done by people and they're always done by a group of people never by an individual because it takes into account the fact that um, we all have very different responses to stuff so I am not on my own you know and the ultimate arbiter uh, of anything but I, I definitely have a taste profile that I like in honey so um, at the the other end I work with planting I've written a book about about planting for bees um, and, I, and I, I do a lot of work around that but also with the honey um, I'm trying to you know, if you if you take a chef at the brigade of any any chef they're going to have had olive oil tastings they're going to have had wine tastings you know they go through a lot of training both on the job and you know where whether they come from catering school or whether they've worked their way up they will not have had a honey tasting and quite often in well more often than not in commercial kitchens, you find those ghastly, bloody, squeezy things mm. are, are there. I mean, they're all pervasive supermarket, cheap supermarket honey. And I'm just trying to think what else I do. I mean, I, I do an awful lot of ones uh, training members of the public as well, which is, which is really good fun, uh, just to show them just the panoply of honeys. 
um, they're just so amazed to see black honey and white honey because they're used to honey-colored honey that comes out of a squeezy bottle. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of very quick gains I can make by just, just running them through, you know, from, from dark to light and different flavors and getting them an understanding of the forage sources and how they can taste those forage sources and stuff. So it's, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a lot of fun, it really is. Brilliant. Oh, well, we could talk all day about honey and bees, but um, (laughs) let's round it up there. And to finish, I'd love for you to tell me what your favourite British ingredient is right now. Um, As every episode, I'm going to be creating a recipe. Yeah, rhubarb. Uh, Rhubarb and honey are just made for each other. Those those tart citric notes that are in rhubarb just meet honey head on in the most sublime way. It's like this incredible seasonal treat that I look forward to every year and and I just yeah every which way you look at it whether you make fools or whether you just have it as stewed fruit or whatever you do a, a, a rhubarb crumble with a good dollop of honey I mean it's just it's mm. insanely good <laughs> yeah absolutely well that's perfect because a neighbor's actually given me a few sticks of rhubarb so I look forward to creating some rhubarb recipes lovely I look forward to it Thank you, Sarah. So lovely to speak to you. Oh, and to you too. It's been a real treat. I feel like I've been let out. (laughs) (laughs) Let out for the day. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Take care, Kat. Ooh, rhubarb. What a great chosen ingredient from Sarah. I've had a lot of fun with rhubarb playing around with pairing it with custard because you can't go wrong with the classic combination of rhubarb and custard. So I've decided to share with you my rhubarb and custard creme brulees, but they do come with a little bit of a twist, which is that the custard is infused with bay and rosemary. Trust me, the delicate herby notes match very well with the roasted rhubarb. It's quite a long recipe to read out, so I won't go through it fully, um, but of course it's on my website, doorstepkitchen.com. But basically, all you need to do is slice and roast your rhubarb for around 10 minutes at 200 degrees with a splash of water, a sprinkle of sugar, a teaspoon of corn flour and the juice of half a lemon. And then you leave it to cool and pop it in the fridge to chill. And then uh, it kind of holds its shape really nicely when you put it on the creme brulee later. Then you just make a classic creme brulee, but you infuse your cream with a bay leaf and a sprig of rosemary, and then leave that to infuse before reheating and then putting into the eggs and sugar like you do with the classic method. Both of the elements are chilled and can be made ahead of time. So when it's time to serve, you just grill your brulees or blowtorch them if you've got one of those. So you get that lovely caramelized crunch and then just top it with your roasted rhubarb. Absolutely delicious. You can visit doorstepkitchen.com forward slash recipes forward slash rhubarb for the recipe. And I've also linked the exact page in the notes under this episode. Now we're moving on to speak to our expert forager, Imogen Davis from London Restaurant Native. She joins us every week. Hello everyone! With some much needed rain over the past week, everywhere is luscious and new buds are popping up all over. Now next week is British Flower Week, a perfect time to celebrate all forage flowers and foliage. There are plenty of beautiful oxeyes daisy around and poppies and also some lovely tall grasses. So have a look at what's around and have fun making a foraged flower arrangement or maybe press some or dry some and share it as a gift for a friend or neighbour and celebrate the beauty of nature. If you're sharing on social media, you can hashtag British Flowers Week. I'd like to say a little hello to Tom and Alexander who've just been doing some great foraging and I'm looking forward to seeing their forage flower arrangement. 
Some beautiful flowers you may have spotted standing up tall above their dark green feathery leaves is yarrow, or Achillea milfolium, which means thousand leaf. The name is a nod to Achilles, the ancient Greek hero who healed his wounded soldiers with yarrow. Before it flowers, you may not notice the arrow on the verges, lawns and meadows, but as soon as you know how to identify it, you'll see it absolutely everywhere. And with a bit of practice, it does become quite easy to identify just by the leaves. They are narrow, long and finely divided and can grow up to about six inches long and one inch across, though often they are a lot smaller than that. The leaves are often, but not always, covered in fine little hairs. Yarrow typically flowers from about now until um, probably September time, and the white flowers grow in flat clusters at the top of the stem. You can even spot some lovely dusty pink coloured ones too. When identifying, the flowers could be seen as vaguely similar to other members of the carrot family, but the long, narrow, feather-like leaves are not really going to be confused with any others, so it's a really great one to help identify and get your foraging off to a great start. Yarrow has the most incredible healing properties and is widely used all over the world as a healing herb. It has a sweet flavour with a slight bitterness and yarrow tea is commonly taken for colds and flus and is super easy to make. You can use the fresh leaves and petals in a tea or you could dehydrate them and use them at a later date. They're also great in salads and back in the days when restaurants were a thing we enjoyed yarrow kombucha as part of our tasting menu. How I miss those days. When out foraging this week, the plants have certainly been enjoying the rain, but I've also come across a lot of poison hemlock. It's a member of the carrot family, and looking quite similar to cow parsley, it's identified by some purple paint splotches up the hairless stem, and they're absolutely huge at the moment than ones near me. Obviously, that's not a definitive way to identify them, but if you look out for those purple splotches, you know that that means danger and stay away. This is a toxic plant that is deadly and not to be messed around with, so it's a good reminder that when you're identifying, always cross-reference and double-check anything that you're foraging. So when you're out picking your flowers for your flower arrangement, definitely just double-check there's none of those purple splotches and just really cross-reference when you're out foraging. Happy foraging! Thanks Imogen, I've seen a lot of Yarra around, but I didn't know it had such beautiful flowers. I'll have to go and find some now as it's flowering. That's all for this episode of The Doorstep Kitchen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this show, please do rate, review and subscribe as it really makes a difference. Next week, I speak to Johnny Elson, wine expert and restaurant director at Coweth Park. He's loving spring lamb at the moment, so stay tuned for lamb recipes. And of course, Imogen will be back to discuss another foraged find. See you next time.